Okay, okay. Good to see you this morning, New Life East family. Those of you that are worshiping with us online, good to have you with us. This is the first Sunday of Advent, and I'm going to take us through some stories in the Gospels that situate us in the meaning of Advent. You may be seated. I'm in the book of Luke chapter 1. I'm going to start in verse 5, and before we get into the scripture this morning, let's just pause for a word of prayer. Almighty God, we do thank you for your love, for your mercy, for your goodness. We thank you that you are our Emmanuel, God with us, God for us forever. You said to your people in the Old Testament and you say to us now, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. I pray that you would help us this morning see how profoundly true that is. That there is not a moment of our lives, there has not been a moment of our lives where you have blipped out of our experience and gone off to do something else, but all of your intention, all of your love, all of your power has been for us every moment of our lives, and you are leading us into glory. As the psalmist said, whom have I in heaven but you, and earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. We pray that this morning that you would strengthen our hearts again in you. Grant it, we ask. May the words of our mouths and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said. Before I open the scriptures, can we give it up to the, for the Ralston family for lighting the candles and the prayers and all of that? I don't know if you caught it, but we had trouble lighting that first one, so we moved on to the second one. And I was thinking, we really, given the year that we've had, we better get at least one candle lit. You know what I mean? That would just be a dark and horrible symbol. Terrible way to start out the Advent season. So here we go, Luke 1, starting in verse 5. The scripture says that in the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. And both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive. And as it turns out, they were both old as well. Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty... And he was serving as priest before God. He was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah saw him, and he was startled and gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John, and he will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. He will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. And he will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Then Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife, you know, she's well along in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. <laughs> I stand in the presence of God. And I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, 
The people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he couldn't speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but he was unable to speak. And when this time of service was completed, he returned home. And after this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me. The Lord has done this for me. What a thing to say. In response to a desperate plea, a lifelong cry, the Lord did it. Finally, the Lord has done this for me. She said, in these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace from among the people. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord and all God's people said, thanks be to God. Advent, Advent. What does Advent mean? Advent comes from the Latin word Adventus, which translates the Greek word parousia, which just means coming. And the church is a church that awaits in so many different ways the coming of the Lord. People of God in the Old Testament awaited the coming of the Messiah. Now we sit on the other side of the coming of Jesus and we await his second coming. We're waiting for God. It's Advent. That's what we do. And we join with all God's people all around the world in that desperate plea, come Lord Jesus. That's how the book of Revelation ended. The church has discerned for 2,000 years, it's discerned really three comings of the Lord. The first coming that we discern is that first coming of the Lord Jesus when he wrapped himself in human flesh, God in flesh. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the creed says, the only Son of God, the eternally begotten of the Father, one God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made for us and for our salvation. He what? Came down. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and he was made man. And so we believe that, that there has been a coming of God. So it's the first coming of God in Jesus. But then we also look ahead to that day when he will return again in glory to judge the living and the dead, right? So the coming of God then that the people of God in the Old Testament expected really has been split in two, the incarnation and then the second coming when the victory of Jesus Christ over sin and death and the grave will be consummated in the kingdom of God. So the first coming and the second coming, but then the church has discerned that what, there's what we might call the third coming or another coming in the midst of that is the many ways in which the presence of God, the presence of God in Christ breaks into our lives before that final coming. So we don't just believe that when Jesus ascended, he's gone, do we? We believe that he's still here. In fact, the interesting thing about the Greek word parousia, which the Latin word Adventus translates, is that parousia both means coming, but it also means appearing. And when we talk about Jesus, we're talking about the one who is with us at all times, but here and there, the heavens tear open, reality tears open, and he appears in our lives in ways that are saving, in ways that help us. And so Advent reminds us that we are awaiting people. And so what we do then during Advent is we read the stories of the Gospels because the stories of the Gospels give us patterns to discern the presence and the activity of God in our waiting. Back to Zechariah and Elizabeth. Here is a man who comes from a priestly line and he's married to this woman. And Luke tells us that both of these individuals were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly, but they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both 
very old. Zechariah and Elizabeth are righteous people. They've served God, they've walked with God, and they have hopes and dreams. Among them, the hope and the dream that they would have a child. And here they are getting well along in years, and they have done everything right. They're blameless, the scripture says. They have lived according to the book, and yet, and yet, there's a fruitlessness about their lives. There's a barrenness about their lives. This place where there should be something good is absent. It's empty. And this is not too far from our stories, is it? There are some of you that are in this room that this is your story. That you desire to have a child and a child has not come into your lives. Married couples in this room. That you've not been able to conceive or you've lost children. And so you feel that absence. You feel that absence. But I think it's bigger than just that. I think it's about all of the places in our lives where we expected fruitfulness and there wasn't fruitfulness. Where we expected results and there weren't results. We expected something to happen and it didn't happen. In that place that in our bones, like in our marrow, we know this place should be occupied with something good. It stands there empty. And every morning and every night and every waking moment of our lives, we come before the Lord, both with thanksgiving for all of the good things that he's done, and we come before the Lord with all of this emptiness, and we keep asking him, when are you going to move over this? What's the plan here? God, because we know that you made us for more than this. You didn't make us for emptiness. You made us for fullness. You set us up so that our lives would be fruitful and good, that we'd bear fruit for the kingdom. We were designed this way. Genesis says as much. Genesis 1, verse 27 and 28. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be what? Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. We know it in our bones, brothers and sisters, that God has set us up to be fruitful. He hasn't created us that our lives would be empty. And so when that moment of emptiness hits us, it touches us as a deep disgrace. And you hear it in Elizabeth's words. She says that the Lord has shown his favor and taken away my what? Disgrace. Because when our lives aren't working the way that God intends, it feels like an insult to us, doesn't it? Like it shouldn't have gone this way, but it did go this way. And Lord, that hurts. The relationship shouldn't have worked out like this, but it did work out like this. And that hurts. God, I know that you set my marriage up for flourishing, but it's not flourishing. And I see all of these other marriages that are working and it hurts. God, I know that you set us up to have children and we don't have children and it hurts. God, I gave everything that I could give to this business, this enterprise, and it's not working out and it feels like an insult to me. It hurts. It strikes at the very core of our humanity, doesn't it? For this reason, when you read the Old Testament, barrenness becomes a powerful symbol for life simply not working the way that God intends. And therefore, the prophets of the Old Testament begin to take this symbol and they lift it up and they see it as a thing that God is going to speak into at the end of history. Listen to the prophet Isaiah here, Isaiah chapter 54, starting in verse 1, starting in verse 5 rather. The prophet Isaiah says, Your maker is your husband, the Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. Verse 13. All of your children will be taught by the Lord and great will be their peace. He's speaking this 
to Israel that has been symbolically barren. At the beginning of the chapter, he says, Sing, O barren woman, you who never bore a child, lift up your voice, raise it with a shout, because God is coming, and more will be the children of the barren woman than of her who has had a husband. God, brothers and sisters, it is the plan of God to arise on behalf of all of those whose lives are barren. This is what God does. That God looks at the insult of our lives, the places that should have been fruitful, and God actually intends even more than we intend. God desires even more than we desire. God aches and plans even more than we ache and plan to fill up those spaces with his fruitfulness. And so Israel at this point in her life in Isaiah was not even looking to God anymore, and yet the prophet shows up and he goes, hey, barren woman, baby, start singing. God is coming your way. For your maker, your creator, is also your husband. He's going to marry you, and you're going to become fruitful. And all of your children will be taught by the Lord, and great will be their peace and undisturbed composure. In other words, this future that seemed closed to you, God is ripping it open, and he's going to establish you in fruitfulness again. And here is this couple now in the first century, Zechariah and Elizabeth. They know Israel's hope. They know it deep in their bones. And they also know their own hope and their own desire deep in their bones. And God comes through and makes the barren woman pregnant in response to her prayers. What God does is God proves himself in this with Zechariah and Elizabeth. Hear me now. God proves himself to be the God of Israel's hope by being the answer to Zechariah and Elizabeth's prayers. Do you see that this morning? God proves himself to be the God of Israel's hope by being the answer to Zechariah and Elizabeth's prayers. This great large thing for Israel all of a sudden piles in to this one seemingly small thing for one seemingly small and insignificant couple in the backwoods of Judea. Are you following me this morning? All of this raises a very interesting and very important question for us. And the question is this, which story is more important? Which story is more important? God's story or our story? Which story is more important, God's story or our story? And there are ditches that you can fall into on either side of trying to answer this question. Two ditches for you. The first ditch is that we make God a puppet or just a player in our story. And so much contemporary and modern Christianity does this. We have our lives and our desires and our hopes and our dreams, and then God is positioned as the answer to all of those things. So all you have to do is give your heart to Jesus, invite Jesus in your heart, and then do these few things, these kind of magical things that will make God appear for you. And God then gets plugged into your life as the thing that makes your life as you've already planned it go. God is a puppet in our story. And so when we do that, then we're elevating our story above the God story, aren't we? We're plugging God into that. Many modern Christians do that. But then the other ditch that we can fall into is that we can say that we are just puppets in God's story. 
that God has these grand plans and God has these grand purposes that he's going to do. And all we are is we're sort of like, uh, any of you have those little trains that you set up around the holidays, you know? Did you do that when you were a kid, a little train set and all of that? My family did that. And how much volition, how much freedom does the train have to act on the train tracks? None. And many people think about our role in God's story like that. That we are just trains on God's tracks moving along in this predetermined way that we're puppets in God's story and we have no freedom and we have no choice and there's none of that. And I want to say that when we read the scriptures, that the scriptural picture of how the God story and how the human story interact is much more complex than that. Beautiful example from the Old Testament. You might remember one of the slimmest little books of the Old Testament. It's the book of Ruth. Do you know the book of Ruth? Naomi. Naomi and her husband, there was a famine in the land and Naomi and her husband and their two sons left Israel and they fled to Moab to try to find some food and they stayed there for a long time. And while they stayed there, Naomi's husband died and her sons married and then the sons died. And so all of a sudden, Naomi is a widow and she's left with her widowed daughters-in-law and they hear, many years pass, and they hear that the Lord has risen to the aid of his people in Israel. And so they decide to start making the journey back to Israel, and one of the daughters-in-law decides to depart and go back to be with her family. But Ruth decides to hang with Naomi. She says, no, 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 I'm, where you go, I will go. And where you stay, you remember the words, I stay. And your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Ruth cleaves to Naomi, and when they get back there, they're destitute. They're without anything. They're bereft. And so Naomi sends Ruth to work in the fields of a man named Boaz. And as she's working in the fields of this man named Boaz, Boaz shows her kindness over and over and over again. And it turns out that Boaz is a relative of Naomi and it's his responsibility to step into the responsibility for for Naomi's deceased husband and for the sons. And so Boaz winds up marrying Naomi and we pick up the text in Ruth chapter 4 verse 13. The scripture says, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And when he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. And the woman, the women of the town said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he be famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Verse 16. Then Naomi Naomi, remember, who had been left bereft. Naomi, whose husband died, whose sons died. She has no hope for the extension of her family. Now, all of a sudden, through this very bizarre set of circumstances, God has arisen to her aid. Naomi takes the child in her arms and cared for him. And the women living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. And Obed was the father of, who then became the father of, David. So which story is more important? God's story or our story? The answer is that they are the same story. They're the same story. Here is this woman who is left without anything but hopes and dreams and prayers. Naomi, whose name means sweetness. Do you know when she goes back to Israel, they say, oh, Naomi's back. And you know, she says, 
Don't call me Naomi, she says. Call me Mara. Mara means bitterness because my life has been made bitter. And she holds her bitterness before the Lord. She holds her ache before the Lord. She holds her longing before the Lord. And what the Lord does in that empty space, that anxious space, that bitter space, that waiting space, is he fills it up with answered prayer. He fills it up with his movement and his activity. He arises on Naomi's behalf. And it turns out that his rising up on behalf of Naomi is an important link in the chain that leads to David, which leads to the Messiah. Whose story is more important, God's story or our story? That's a wrong way to position the question. They're the same story. And if the entire history of the Old Testament were not enough to prove the point, the life of Jesus would drive the point home beyond any dispute. When you come and start reading the Gospels and see how Jesus moves in the Gospels, it almost seems, I've been reading the Gospels my whole life, one of the things that astounds me continually about the Gospels is how often it seems like Jesus has no plan. Did you ever notice that about the Gospels? For as many times as it says that he told his disciples we're going to go to this place or that place, 90% of the time, gospel stories kind of begin with, and Jesus was walking along with his disciples. One Sabbath, they were just sort of going through the grain fields together. Why were they doing that? Jesus, don't you have something more important to do? Don't you have somewhere more important to be? But Jesus, there he is, just walking along the road, and somebody will lift up their voice. Jesus, Master, have pity on me. I need your help. My son lies at home. He's suffering from demon possession. Could you do something for him? And Jesus will go and take care of that. Jesus, master, have pity on me. I can't see. And Jesus will spit in the dirt and make the mud and rub it in his eyes. And the, the person will see, Jesus, Jesus, I've been excluded all of my life. And Jesus will bring that person near. And you start going, Jesus, it almost seems like you have nothing better to do but then to respond to the needs of people. And Jesus says, you're exactly right. People are why Jesus came. <laughs> We're the whole point of this. He took on a body. He took on our flesh. He lived our life and died our death because we because our lives and our hurts and our bitternesses and our desires, our ache, our longing, our pain, our brokenness, all of it matters to God. Which story, brothers and sisters, is more important, God's story or our story? They're the same story. I want to ask you this morning, what is the barrenness that you're holding before the Lord? I know that you know what it is because it is with you every waking moment of your life. That place in your life that feels like it should have been full, but instead it's empty. That thing that it, you know that it should have worked out a certain way, but it's not working out that way. That thing that no matter how hard you try, you can't seem to fill it up and you can't seem to make it right. What is the place of barrenness in your life? What is the place of emptiness in your life? What is the place of fruitlessness in your life that you're calling on God to make fruitful again? I want you to know something this morning. 
God is not overlooking that area any more than God was overlooking the barrenness of Zechariah and Elizabeth. He's not overlooking it. And I want you to know something else. It's not unimportant to God. It's not as though God has all these other bigger, better things to deal with. Oh, but that's what our hearts tell us. Maybe you can't really pay attention to this. You don't have time for this because, God, you got to deal with what's happening in Washington, D.C. But you don't really have time for me because you're dealing with global poverty out there. God, you don't really have time for me because you're trying to deal with racism in our world. God, you don't really have time for me because there are all these people that are starving to death in our world. You don't really have time for me. But I, don't you understand it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. There are not things in God's world that are more important and less important. Everything in God's world is infinitely important. The relationship that you have with your father that doesn't work, that matters to God as much as what's happening in Washington, D.C. The barren womb that you're holding before the Lord, that matters to God as much as global poverty matters. The relationship with your son or your daughter that you can't seem to make work out, the dream that you've been running after and it doesn't seem like it, that matters to God as much as anything matters in God's world. We don't have to choose with our God. But every single piece of our stories, every single piece of our lives, what God has done is he's taken it and he's woven it into his large life. And he's woven it into his large story. And he knows exactly how he's going to move over that thing. The question is, what is our responsibility? What are we called to do? And there are two more ditches that you can fall into here. When we think about our responsibility, when we think about it, one of the things that we can say to ourselves is that in this whole thing, our faith or our faithfulness matters most. And if you grew up in Pentecostal or charismatic circles, this is how you're automatically hardwired to think. That the thing that matters most is the amount of faith that we exert. If we just show God a lot of faith and if we're really faithful, then what will happen is that will bend God's ear to us. It will bend his attention. It will bend his energy, our direction. And so we put all of the weight on our shoulders. I just need to show more faith. I just need to be more faithful. And so what we do is then our faith becomes a white knuckling it before God just waiting on contact. And when he doesn't, we either blame him or we blame ourselves or we blame Christianity and the whole thing winds up falling apart. It's a bad way to live. We say to ourselves that our faithfulness matters the most or we say, second ditch, that God's decision matters most. Doesn't matter what we do. It doesn't matter what we believe. It doesn't matter how much faith I have because God's just going to do what God's just going to do in his time. And so we just kind of check out mentally. Neither of those things are true. Luke gives us a clue, I think, to the way that we're supposed to live in the waiting space. Look back at Luke 1, starting in verse 8. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot. There is the decision of God coming down to him according to the custom of the priesthood to what? To go into the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. And so when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. 
And then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. Verse 13, but the angel said to him, don't be afraid, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you are to call him John. Somewhere at the intersection of our prayer, our volition, and God's volition, God's agency, that's where we're called to live. Zechariah was chosen by lots. It wasn't his decision. He was chosen to do this thing. And what, he, what did he do? He followed through on his duty. He followed through on his responsibility. And in that space of following through on his responsibility, doing what God had called him to do, living the life that God had called him to live, fulfilling the tasks that God had assigned to him, all of a sudden, surprise, broke into Zechariah's life. It's not all on you, but it's not, not on you either. You have a role in this. And the church for, history, for centuries now has talked about the intersection, God's movement at the intersection of two things, work and prayer. Work and prayer. The ancient way of saying it is ora et labora, that we lift up our prayer to God and then we labor. We get to work. And somehow in that space of ora et labora, work and prayer, watching and waiting for God, what happens is God's shalom comes into our lives. I'm calling you this morning. Some of you are holding desperate, aching, waiting space in your heart. And what I'm saying to you this morning is stay in it with your God. You haven't done wrong. You're doing it right. Keep in it. Keep praying, keep serving, keep being faithful, keep letting your prayer rise like incense before the Lord and watch as God breaks through. Let's stand this morning. I don't know what that thing is for you, but when I asked that question earlier, what is the place of barrenness that you're holding before the Lord? Would you now hold that up before Jesus? Hold it up before Jesus. Jesus, come. Jesus, come. We return again this morning to the truth that our lives matter to you. That our heartache matters to you that our longing and our ache and our desperate pleas, all of it matters to you. And we're asking for you to come. We're asking for the kingdom to come. We're asking for the will of God to be done. I'm praying this morning over every relationship that is not working as you intend. Oh, Jesus, come. I'm praying this morning over every womb that is barren. Lord Jesus, move upon it with life. I'm praying this morning over every mind that is not working as you intend. Come, Lord Jesus. Every dream that seems like it's just not working out, every hope that feels like it is miscarried, we're saying to you, Lord Jesus, come. And we're asking that you would meet us also with the gift of your presence, the reminder that you're the one who strengthens us in the waiting, that you strengthen us to keep giving glory to God in the midst of our waiting, even when it seems foolish. So come and help us. We're returning to you this morning. And as we do, we make this our prayer of confession, 
our repentance before you. Say it with me, family. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole hearts. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, the power to be faithful, the power to stay in it, the power to wait comes from God. This morning I say to you that your sins are forgiven, that you're clean, that you're new creations in Christ Jesus, and that the Lord is filling you afresh with the power of his Holy Spirit. If you can receive that this morning, give God praise. Let's sing this song of worship together, and then Pastor Colin is going to lead us to the table. Triumph unfolds. 
will surely keep your promise to me that I will rise in your victory. of God, the Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. This morning, would you give God thanks in your hearts for what he has done? As we ponder this morning how Zechariah was faithful in his duties as priest. And as we ponder having courage, mindful of what Jesus said on the night that, that he was betrayed, he said, God, would you take this cup from me? He modeled this faithfulness when he went to the cross for us. And on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. The same way after supper, he took the cup saying, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Would you proclaim the mystery of our faith together? Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. God, thank you. Thank you for the gift of yourself, Lord. And we hold this in our hand, Lord. We're thank, so thankful that you are the bread of life. God, you give us the courage and the ability, Lord, to stick to the task. God, you are with us in the waiting. 
God, be merciful to us. Lord, would you answer our prayers, Jesus? Thank you for answering our prayers through this gift of yourself. Brothers and sisters, these are the gifts of God for the people of God. Let's receive the bread together. Let us receive the cup together. Thank you, Jesus. Let's sing together. you lift up your hands. New Life East, people of God, the Father loves you. The Son is with you. The Spirit is filling you. And so as you go from this place, I say, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, grace, mercy, and peace be with you. I'll invite our altar ministry team to come down front here. If you need prayer for anything, we would love to stand with you in prayer. If uh, this is your first time with us, like Pastor Colin mentioned, see us at Connect Central. We've got a gift for you. We'd love to meet you. Go in God's grace and peace. We'll see you soon.